Hi, Raf. Hey, Heath. How are you? I'm awesome. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks. So thanks for joining me, and thanks to anyone who's listening. This is uh, the second conversation that you and I have had, and it's it's essentially an exploration of Pilates through the ages, very subjectively through your experience and my questions. Yeah, I agree with every part of that, except for I think this is probably like the 1,000th conversation we've had, not the second. Yeah. second recorded one. No, I reckon. Oh, no, we did a bunch, didn't we, back in the day? Yeah, probably the fourth or fifth recorded one that we've done on Pilates. I think we did like queuing and programming. Uh, Those were two separate ones. You and I did um, every exercise is cat stretch. Um, Yeah, so we've done a whole bunch, you and I. Quite right. You're quite right. Sorry. I totally reject the two numbers. Okay, yeah. Yeah, shot down in flames. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. So what we're going to explore today is uh, your journey and and the combined journey of you and Breathe Education and its courses um, from something that you talk, we've talked about before, which was your early days working in Sydney for a company, I believe, that was called Elixir, and as you developed as an um, instructor and then instructor trainer and then to opening Breathe Wellbeing, and within Breathe Wellbeing, part of your strategy was to generate your own instructors. And so you built, uh, you you ran Stop Pilates instructor training courses from within Breathe Wellbeing. Um, so there's a bunch of things that I'd like to explore in there. Um, but I'd love for you to double click on the file in your brain and spend some time setting the scene for what Breathe Wellbeing was like what the Pilates scene in Melbourne and Australia was like when you did it um, and what you were shooting for and how it landed with people. Uh, Yes, so I worked at Elixir Health Clubs in Sydney. That's where I I first was introduced to to Pilates and I did the bulk of my Pilates certification training through them, like through Stop Pilates, but at Elixir. And uh, so that was in Sydney and they were, this was in 2004, 2005. They were, they called themselves a mind body health club. Um, and so it was essentially health club in the fitness industry just means expensive gym with white towels. Um, Free towels. And, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so they were, they had three locations in this, in the city of Sydney and uh they had all of the normal gym equipment, you know, weights and squat racks and treadmills and, and all the rest of it. And then in, in their group exercise space, instead of having like a spin studio or aerobics and pump and step and all of that stuff, they had a yoga space and they had a Pilates group reformer space. And the reformer space, I think, had 20 or 18 or something reformers in it, some, somewhere around there. Uh, and this was totally radical uh, at the time, that, that was, you know, like five times the size of the second biggest Pilates reformer studio in Australia at that time. Uh, and so they operated like a gym in terms of their membership structure. So you basically became a member and you paid a monthly due. You signed up on a 12-month contract, just like you did at most gyms, you know, at the time. Uh, and you could use the weights and the treadmills and come to as many yoga and Pilates classes as you wanted. Um, and so that was the model. and. 
yeah, I, so I worked there. I did my stop ladies training through there. And we talked about, you know, how I got into that previously. But yeah, so that was Elixir Health Clubs. And um, they were fantastically successful. Like they had three franchises, three, not franchises, three wholly owned you know, clubs in the middle of Sydney. Uh, I, w- I did the, I would managed one of them. I was a group sales manager for all three of them for a while. I did the pre-sales on two of them. Um, you know, they were like multi-million dollar fit outs. Like they were very, very schmick high end facilities and doing a lot of, uh, a lot of sales, a lot of revenue, really good business. Uh, and so when we came down to Melbourne, we thought we'd open a business kind of similar, but without all the gym equipment, just yoga and Pilates. And so that was, uh, breathe wellbeing. And that we teamed up with a bunch of, friends. So there was myself and five others, I think, uh, that we opened this business called Breathe Wellbeing. Um, and we basically tried to copy the Elixir model in terms of the structure of it. Like we we put in 20 or 18, I think it was 18, can't remember, like <laughs> about that, 18 or 20 reformers. And then we had a yoga studio that could fit 32. And we had a small group studio that we could do um, you know, we had a couple of Cadillacs, a couple of chairs, a couple of barrels, a couple of reformers, whatever. So we could basically do two four-on-one groups in there at the same time. So we went big and, um, you know, so th- so we started out that business and that was a hungry beast of a business in terms of instructors. Like, uh, so we were running, you know, after, after we'd been going a year, we were running like 80 classes a week there just the reformer right uh no i think that was across everything okay and so basically you know like you know each peak session so like before work then lunchtime and then evening would have like two or three classes in a row and they'd be there'd be two or three classes in each room the whole time so there'd be like back-to-back three small groups and at the same time back-to-back three reformer classes and back-to-back three yoga or mat work classes in the yoga space. So, uh, so we need heaps of instructors. Um, and we just, we actually started the stop Pilates instructor training just to feed the beast, you know, to, to, to have, to, to cream off the best instructors off the skim of them off the top of the milk, as it were. Mm. Uh, so, you know, so that was, that was there. And when we arrived in Melbourne, like there was this business called Matrix Pilates, which were just right up the road. And they had 10 reformers and they were like totally radical because that was like five times bigger than the second biggest reformer studio in, in Melbourne at the time. They closed down very soon after we opened. I think they were kind of on their last legs, you know, even before we came along and us opening two blocks away probably didn't help them. But um, that was kind of a gym reformer hybrid model. Like it was the vibe when you went in, there was kind of like a personal training studio and they had a room with reformers in it. So it wasn't appealing to the sort of people who we now know with 12 years of hindsight or 15 years of hindsight actually, you know, are into reformer Pilates. Um, It was like, hey, if you love the gym, you'll love the gym plus reformer Pilates. And it's like, yeah, no, that's not how it works. (laughs) So... Yeah. Um, so, we, so our we business want more floorboards than black mats. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, yeah, our, our business was kind of really radical in that it looked, you know, like a beautiful yoga studio with floorboards and white space and lots of light and flowers and tea and Incense. all the rest of it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was run, you know, in many ways similar to a gym in that we had like business systems and receptionists and automation and, you know, 
uh, processes and stuff like that. So, so that was kind of like the the the, the landscape. I think we should just pause for a moment because like one of the things that it did that wasn't being done, to my knowledge at the time, bearing in mind this is seventeen years ago, was it felt when you walked in, it it did not. You just said it's a bit like a gym, but that's only in the operations behind. Right. Like the, right. The, the actual the way it felt when you walked in was polished floorboards, good quality linen on the soft furnishings. There were couches to sit on. There were um, cookbooks and you know things that you take for granted these days about a day spa and a Pilates studio. It was completely new in that sense. So you op- the elevator would open and you were expecting fitness because that's what you were doing. It was a fitness model, but you came out into soft music three Apple Macs on a beautifully made, handmade wooden bench uh, desktop. Um, you were greeted by a smiling receptionist who would give you a tour of the facility. It, all the walls were white. The music was being piped, you know, a- appropriately throughout the whole building. And there were, uh, should we say, what like well-selected well and subtle design pieces around the place. The lighting was well-considered. You know, just elements that I think we take for granted these days that has hybridized with fitness often through the filter of Pilates. To my knowledge, it was it was basically a day spa where you did exercise and that was really new for people. Yeah, and uh, and, and I think if, you know, if you're listening to this and you're kind of less than 40 years old, you know, you probably don't remember a time when <laughs> this was the case. But, you know, for those of you who remember like dial-up phones and, uh, you know, rotary phones and and um, things like that. This, this uh, is pre mobile phone, isn't it? This is pre iPhone. iPhone came out in in late two thousand six. We opened in yeah late two thousand six, yeah. early two thousand seven. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, exactly right. So it was it was a Pilates studio, yoga studio, gym hybrid. And what the insight that we had when we opened the or before we opened the business was that you know there was so much that yoga studios and Pilates studios were doing right in terms of the ambience and. And the the movement style that they taught, but there's so much they were doing wrong in terms of the business structures, practices, and processes and sales. And then gyms on the flip side, they were doing a lot of the business stuff right, but they the ambience was pretty horrible. <laughs> so, um, so we, you know, the insight that we had was like, okay, well, let's take a yoga and Pilates studio and put these gym, you know, style business systems you know, up to, you know, inside it so that it's got all of those beautiful things that basically that things that you take for granted as part of a yoga and play, as part of a party studio in 2022, when we're recording this conversation, but like in 2006, this was radical. Like no one was offering like tea when you walked in or free apples or, you know, nice space. Like it was, it, this was very, you know, very uh, cutting edge and, and, in fact, no one even knew what reformer Pilates was. Like we literally had to explain what reformers were to people every time we toured them through the the space. And um, yeah, so we were was very much like the early days where you know Pilates in Melbourne at that time was uh, you know mat Pilates was very popular through the nineties and early two thousands. Like there was a big expansion of mat Pilates became a big thing at gyms, I think, and a lot of community halls. Uh, we're doing massive classes of like, you know, 60 people, whatever, you know, Matt Pilates. Uh, and it was getting really popular. And so Pilates itself was starting to grow in popularity around that time, but it was still like a super niche cottage 
industry and it was sort of exploding in lots of different directions and it was i guess it was kind of like at the early early days of the of the the motor vehicle you know manufacturing industry in the united states in in the like early 20th century when there were like 250 different automobile manufacturers and each one of them was literally just some guy in his garage you know hand making you know one car every month or whatever and and it was the same kind of thing i think in melbourne around that time with pilates there were there were lots of little pilates studios and pilates was really exploding in popularity but there was no like there was no big chain there's no business there was no like established business model that was like oh yeah this is the model that works well and now and 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 before you know it like everyone's doing that same model and like when we fast forward to 2022 now we know the model that works well is like 14 reformers in a room um, with no extra receptions, you know, maybe like a, a tiny little reception space or, or just a, a computer in the corner sort of thing. Uh, and the instructor is the receptionist. And, uh, you know, and so that is the, that's the format that seems that has worked really well. And just by the, like the, the Darwinian sort of survival of the, of the fittest, you know, those, that is the model that has prospered. And even the, the bigger model that we had, like we had a massive model. That wasn't our model. We had 18 reformers in one room, and then we had 32 yoga mats in another room. We had all these Cadillacs and things in the other room. And then we had this massive lounge. And so our model actually proved to be, our business model proved to be not the, not the, not the best model, right? So, um, but you know, in 2006, there was, there was no other model. You know, this is, <laughs> this is before club Pilates, this is before KX Pilates, this is before any, like if you think of any brand of Pilates that you like now that teaches group reformer, they didn't exist then because group reformer wasn't a thing back in, back in 2006. Yeah. So that was, you know, and, and I think, you know, when I think about, you know, my training with stop Pilates, one of the things that I feel has been really lacking, was lacking for me, you know, was that sense of contextualizing what I learned within the history of Pilates. Like when I learned stop Pilates, I didn't learn it as like, hey, you're learning stop Pilates. I learned it as like, you're learning Pilates. Like when I learned it, like, yeah, stop Pilates and Pilates meant the same thing in my mind. You know, there wasn't like, oh, stop Pilates is a type of Pilates. It was just like, there was no like, quote type of Pilates. They're just stop Pilates. <laughs> um and 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 you know like I never really thought about like where does where did Pilates come from? Like I didn't even I I don't even know if I knew that there was a guy called Joseph Pilates. You know, I thought Pilates came from Moira Mary Few, you know, maiden name Moira Stott. Right. And and I you know I'm sure she never said like I invented Pilates or anything, but that was just, you know, that was my takeaway was like, okay, this basically emerged from Moira. And, uh, you know, I didn't question that there, you know, never occurred to me there was a different way of doing it. You know, it's like when you're a kid, you know, you, you, whatever weird sort of idiosyncrasies your parents have, you don't think of them as weird. It's normal, (laughs) you know? And so, so when I, you know, after we left Sop Pilates and I, you know, subsequently did started, you know, being exposed to lots of other different ways of thinking and lineages and systems and started reading all of Joseph Pilates' works repeatedly, uh, I realized, you know, oh, there's a much deeper and richer history to this. And I, and I realized actually there'd been like, you know, I guess what we have come to call like the, the, uh, the different sort of eras of Pilates. There was the Joseph Pilates, the Contrology era, which is like, you know, probably from the, the 19, 
20s up until 1967 when Joseph died. And that's when Joseph was the person who was driving it forward and owning it and, and leading it. And, and, you know, actually in that Joseph Pilates era, in the Contrology era, because he called, he didn't call it Pilates, he called it Contrology. It was characterized by like the movement that I learned in stop Pilates were so different. You know, I'd learned this kind of like very, you know, the, Moira was, Moira was a ballet, was a former prima ballet dancer. Now, a lot of people in Pilates are former dancers. And so Pilates, I thought, was very dancer-like. You know, it was always very graceful and shoulders down and back and, you know, soft elbows and all of these dance things, you know. Um, but looking at Joseph Pilates' move and looking at his instructions in the book and the, he's like, he's just like this, like, re, you know, he uses like the words knees locked about freaking a hundred times in Return to Life through Contrology. <laughs> you know, like he really, you know, he's into, and when he talks about things like, uh, you know, the, the positions of the spine, he's like head up and back as far as possible. As, as much as possible. As yeah, much yeah. as possible. <laughs> Press your spine, you know, vigorously full length, you know, into the mat, you know. So there's no like, oh, gently, you know, crush the grape under your lower. There's, there's none of that. That didn't come from Joseph. He was a very kind of vigorous, you know, blunt sort of a person from everything that I can gather. And the way that he moved was kind of vigorous and blunt as well. Like he was, I don't think you could really objectively call the man graceful, you know, like, um, so, so this really surprised the crap out of me when I learned, you know, uh, about that, you know, this whole sort of what for me had been kind of felt like a hidden history. Now, again, I don't think Moira ever like claimed that she made up Pilates or tried to hide Joseph Pilates or anything, but it's like, that was kind of just the culture within that stop Pilates realm and so and so like you know and then after, when Joseph died in 1967 there's what we call a classical era which is where uh Romana Krasnowska became the the leader of Pilates and you know if you've listened you know Pilates stratosphere if you've listened to uh the my conversation with John Howard Steele um who was a direct student of Joseph Pilates um I can't remember which number episode is probably like 50 or 60, something somewhere around there. Um, he, he talks about, you know, in his book, he talks about the transition from Joseph to Romana and Romana, um, really wasn't, uh, the anointed sort of disciple of Joseph Pilates. She actually just went off to South America and lived in, I think it was like Venezuela or somewhere, Argentina, something for like a decade or more. And then after Joseph died and the Pilates, Jim was basically on its last legs about to, you know, cark it, mm. you know, a group of students like went to Romana and said, oh, please, Romana, would you come and take over the gym? Because it's like none, none of the other students want to do it. And Romana was like, okay, I'll come and I'll do it. And, and so then, you know, it's, so, but Joseph actually never appointed her to be his successor. That was you know, posthumously done. Uh, and then Romana, of course, was a, an amazing dancer. And so that's when the, the dancer era, that's where all the dance stuff came in now because Romana taught it like dance because she was a dance teacher. So then there was that classical era, which went from like 1967 to the like early nineties when Romana retired, uh, as more mostly retired, basically when, when the people who Romana had trained became the next generation of, of trainers, that's kind of when the next era started. So in that classical era, Pilates was very balletic, you know, it was very, very balletic. And um, that's where all of that stu stuff came in, like shoulders down your back and, you know, all the rest of it. Um, and uh, in that 
next generation after Romana sort of passed the torch to the next generation, people who she had trained, of whom Moira Stott was one, that became the contemporary era. Um, and they called it contemporary Pilates because the word contemporary means like current now, you know, at the present time. Um, but the irony is... Uh, it's now 30 years old. Right. That's th- that was 30 years ago. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, it's more like, you know, was a contemporary of Charles Dickens or something, you know, that's in that sense of the word. <laughs> um, yeah, and so the contemporary era is sort of was based on that classical uh, base because all of those, all the people who Romana trained were dancers because Romana was a dancer and so they were all dancers. But then they infused the the current at the time, the exercise science, biomechanics, physiotherapy, you know, into Pilates. And so, like, I think this is totally uh, – this is perfectly um, embodied in the Pilates principles, right? So Joseph Pilates didn't have Pilates principles, right? I mean, you read either of his books, Return to Life Through Contrology or Your Health, you know, cover to cover, not – there is – not one mention of any principle. He does not talk about principles. That Joseph Pilates didn't have Pilates principles. Uh, they were created in the early eighties um, in a book by. Let's put it here. Uh, this one here, the Pilates method of physical and mental conditioning. Uh, by Philip Friedman and Gail Eisen. And this was published in like 82 or thereabouts. And they introduced these six Pilates principles, you know, of centering and control and precision and breath and flowing movement and all the rest of it. Uh, And uh, they became, you know, widely accepted. And then everyone thought, oh, yeah, Pilates principles, those are just part of Pilates. But it's like, well, they're fine principles, but they weren't actually part of (laughs) Pilates that Joseph made. Uh, and then, you know, so those were, those were the Pilates principles. But then in the kind of not mid-90s something, um, when Moira Stott and I, I'm guessing her um, contemporaries, you know, um, create each created their own kind of version of the Pilates method, uh, with Moira, you know, they changed, in Stott Pilates, they changed the principles to the Stott Pilates biomechanical principles. So there was no like centering, precision, control, breath, blah, blah, blah. It was now pelvic positioning and ribcage placement and scapular stabilization. And, you know, so it was all about biomechanics, right? So, but, so, so this like perfectly kind of echoes or pers- like is emblematic of that whole shift from Joseph Pilates with this kind of like very vigorous lock your knees head up and back as far as possible <laughs> you know no there are no principles it's just like you know he gives you certain it's do the thing and then there's more uh there's 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 uh romana and i'm not sure i'm not sure if she made up the principles or where they came from but they were first documented to my knowledge in that book by friedman and eisen in the early 80s and um then those principles which many people in pilates think of as like immutable you know laws of physics um in the 90s sometime, they morphed in the contemporary, you know, method to scapular stabilization and 
etc. And of course, there are multiple sort of hybridized versions of all of this. And this is my my experience from working within Stop Pilates world. And I'm sure if I'd worked within Polestar or within something else, it would have been a little bit different. But I, you know, I think it probably holds to a certain extent, even for other brands of contemporary Pilates, like they're much more biomechanically based, to my understanding, um, rather than you know, uh, balletic or certainly not like contrology like where you watch Joseph moving, he looks like some kind of robotic sort of, you know, 19th century gym gymnastics instructor, you know. Um, yeah, so so I didn't have any of that context and and getting that context really like was a massive eye opener for me. <laughs> So there's a couple of things I want to catch you there on and double click on a little bit. I mean, so the fact that the fact that we've got Pilates today, as far as I can tell, is essentially a fluke of history. When Joseph was developing these movements, there were other people in Europe doing the same thing, but Joseph got on a boat and came to New York and happened to set himself up close enough to the New York Ballet. Someone referred people and so it became viral and it happened to be in, you know, in in New York, in the country that over the next hundred odd years became the dominant economic and cultural force on the planet. And so with that rose Pilates. But then there's also the fluke of history that when he died and from what Jonathan Howard Steele says, it nearly tapered to a finish because there weren't people who were either motivated or inclined to um, or skilled perhaps to carry it on they managed to the last minute find Romana and she kind of got it going again and then it kind of had the happy the the historical chance of overlapping with aerobics and the birth of that in the 80s which kind of kicked some new life into it but there's another one and I think people would probably be interested to hear that when the contemporary era comes along as you've just said we have these biomechanical principles or imperatives that become infused with it, which might seem like they overlap with some of the things that Joseph says, right? Like he, he talks about the shape of the body and tall posture, etc. except that he doesn't talk about a neutral spine. He talks about flat backs and there's lots of things which double click. It's not the same, but it smells the same. But the, the, the science that gave, when I when I started to train with you, what I heard a lot of evidence based practice, and I didn't really know what it was, but it seemed like well, good. Well, evidence is good because that gave us aeroplanes and petrol and medicine, so that must be good. But the the infusion of physiotherapy with the contemporary model, given your subsequent studies in exercise physiology, etc., can you just think out loud and give some insight on perhaps the the history of um, musculoskeletal research, how that maybe parallels with the, the eras of Pilates you've just talked about. Like, you know, in the 1950s, did exercise physiology and physiotherapy exist? Uh, yes. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, they did. Um, but they were really, uh, I, I think... <sighs> Essentially, you know, even within the research world, like like one of the fundamental premises of of many 
styles of Pilates teaching these days, and I think this goes, you know, quite a way back into the history of Pilates. One of the fundamental premises is that something called movement quality is is profoundly important to obtaining the benefits for an exercise, you know. And you know, movement quality has you know different definitions. You know, depends on who's doing the definition, but it's you know, in stop Pilates, it was scapulation sit flat and flush on the rib cage, you know, with the medial borders of vertical and parallel three to five centimetres from the spinous processes, depending on the size of the individual. And then as the arm raises into flexion, the scapulation should upwardly rotate and posteriorly tilt, blah, 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 blah. You know, so there were all these, you know, specific sort of criteria of like, okay, what constitutes quality movement? And the the the, the foundational premise under, underpinning all of that, which did come from physical therapy and, and exercise science, I think, was that quality movement gives better outcomes for the person doing the moving, whether that is improved strength, uh, whether that is improved stability, whether that is reduced injury, less pain, all of those things. Quality movement equals good movement. Um, and I think it's a – so that's been kind of an assumption within exercise science and physiotherapy for many decades. Uh, however, in the, I would say, uh, that is one of the things. Now, many of the, you know, if we if we go back even deeper into the history of movement and even just medicine and science, so we go back into the 19th century and, and look at the roots of physiotherapy, the roots of, say, chiropractic, of osteopathy, of um, you know, uh, orthopedic surgery, like all of these basically uh, professions that deal with musculoskeletal, you know, pain and, and performance. Um, most of them were, or all of them were founded on non-scientific principles, right? So in the case of osteopathy and chiropractic, it was just some guy who made it up. Um, and uh, in the case of uh, orthopedic surgery, it was kind of like a turf war where the orthopedic surgeons were originally surgeons of like children, um, uh, uh, you know, like ped means children. Um, and so uh, they were children's surgery. And then like this new kind of, when x-rays were invented in the 1896, all of a sudden we could see inside the body and we could say, oh, there's something wrong with this joint. And so the, the orthopedic surgeon was like, oh, we'll do that. We'll, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll operate on people's joints. So they started, you know, operating on people's joints and they were like, oh, now orthopedics, an orthopedic surgeon now is a joint surgeon. They're not a children's surgeon anymore. Um, but, you know, pediatricians are now the, 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 the children's doctors. Um, and, but, but, but it wasn't scientific, right? It was just some like really smart, guy who was an orthopedic surgeon going, oh, I got an x-ray that shows me an elbow joint and someone's got pain in their elbow. I can see a little bump in there. I might operate and get rid of the bump and that'll fix their elbow pain, right? There was no research basis to it. It was totally unscientific. It was just like people doing what they thought was the best thing and like, going, oh, I could make some more money from some more operations or what I could save some more people or whatever. And it was the same with physical therapy, right? There was no research to underpin the physical therapy grew up out of massage pre-World War One, um, and, you know, medical massage was, like, frowned upon. It was, like, lowly. It was very uh, low status because, like, of course, a massage parlor was was somewhere you went 
you know, you house of ill repute, right? Right, it was a house of ill repute, right? And so, medical massage in the nineteenth century wanted to distance themselves from massage parlors as far as possible, right? So, there's like whatever you do in a massage parlor, we'll do the opposite. Okay, you go to a massage parlor for pleasant physical sensations, we'll make you like we'll massage you in an unpleasant physical, we'll make it hurt. So it's like no one's definitely going to us for pleasure. You know, they're going just for, you know, for, for, for good, wholesome, like, you know, therapeutic benefit. So, so, so it was really, and then physical, physical therapy and physiotherapy grew out of that, you know, around World War One and post World War One. And that's where the physical therapy profession originated in the UK and grew out to the rest of the world from there. And so all of these professions, have at their root this very basically non-scientific, you know, thinking. So, and so, like, if you go back to like 1920, okay, probably a hundred percent of what was done by physiotherapists was non-scientific, right? And then, as the decades proceeded, you know, gradually more science came in, and they started to adapt, you know, parts of what they were doing based on the science. You know, maybe by 1950, like. 20% of what they were doing was scientific and the rest of it was just something that someone had made up. Um, and by the time we got to the, the 1980s or 90s, you know, it was still like, you know, a significant amount was non-scientific. And even right now in 2022, like there is a meta-analysis that came out recently um, on the, the, the scientific evidence for a bunch of surgeries. And like the majority of orthopedic surgeries for pain Okay, have no scientific basis. Right? There's actually, you know, either no trials comparing that surgery to placebo, okay, or there are trials comparing it to placebo, and it's no better than placebo. You know, so like if you get a like an, an arthroscopic debridement for meniscal tear, or if you get a subacromial decompression for a shoulder impingement, or if you, you know, like there's so many, you get a low back spinal fusion for low back pain, right? So many surgeries. If you get the placebo surgery, which is like they give you a general anesthetic, they give you the skin incision, then they sew you up and wake you up and said, hey, congratulations, the surgery was a success. You get the exact same amount of improvement in your pain. Okay, and function and strength and all the rest of it. And, or there just is no research. Like we don't know if this surgery is better, worse, or the same as placebo. Uh, and so, so there's a vast amount of stuff that goes on that just isn't scientific. And, and in physical therapy was no exception. And so a lot of that assumption that movement quality underpins, you know, good function and pain free moves, like, yeah, that was just an assumption, right? There was no scientific basis for that. And, you know, there was, there was, you know, there've been some bits of evidence that's pointed that towards that might be a, a thing. And there's been a lot of evidence that points towards the fact that it's probably not a thing to any, to a great extent. So I think that that notion that, that quality movement, um, you know, is important. It kind of did come from physical therapy, did come from exercise science, but it was never really a scientific, you know, based yeah. thing. And it conveniently overlaps with, uh, with the with with dance being the holder of a movement style, right? So, well, because in dance, movement quality is everything. Like everything, it's only right. movement quality. Like that's the yeah. only thing that's important. Yeah, all of your training is in service of the quality of your movement. Right, that's what dance is. Mm. It's an expression of quality movement. You know, we, you know, quality defined as 
you know, whatever the particular dance style yeah. is. Yeah, the aesthetic of whatever the, the, the form is. Yeah. So we've got this so we've got these kind of like perfectly overlapping parallel histories where the dancers, the dancers, are the holders of Pilates, and we've got this emerging scientific medical model which is actually premised on assumptions about the quality of movement predicting safety or better function and they overlap perfectly and oh, come together perfect storm. <laughs> perfect storm and then and that's and that becomes contemporary pilates yeah i think i think so uh and i, I think you know ironically you know contemporary pilates it was infused with what at the time was the contemporary science and physical therapy and all the rest of it but had it basically ossified you know it 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 did not progress and it's like it is no longer in like it is still in line with contemporary physical therapy and exercise science circa 1999 you know and so those biomechanical principles that i learned in stop pilates which i'm pretty confident are still the 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 going you know um fair in stop pilates and if you're a stop pilates instructor and i'm wrong about that please correct me um uh but yeah so but you know those biomechanical principles like yeah that's not current best practice in physical therapy it's not current best practice in exercise science uh it was best practice in the late 90s early 2000s but yeah science moves on all right so let's so and that sort of brings us the late 90s early 2000s that's when you're starting breathe well-being and you've got 20 reformer beds and you're developing instructors and you've got your own training organization uh, training structures within breathe well-being that's part of the stop organization and you discover i mean I, I'm, I'm thinking this through because this is where i you know you and i knew each other when we were before there were mobile phones, then we reconnected around this time. I came to see you with Lower We couldn't back. ring each other up. Couldn't ring each other up. There was no Facebook. <laughs> I couldn't text you. Um, somehow I was recommended to go and see this guy, Raphael, who was starting a studio. Was this my therapist I saw for my back pain? And, and it, you know, I think I said this last time, how many Raphael benders can there be in, in fitness and movement? And there you were. And one of the first things that you talked to me about was evidence-based practice. And you introduced me to books by Stuart McGill, Shirley Sarman, which was way above and beyond any of the books because I kept them all from the stop training. So the stop yeah. training, like you say, is kind of handing down this uh, contained universe. It's like you could read the books and not yeah. know where it came from and just accept yeah. it as the reality entirety. But you were not like that. You were like, okay, well, or at least by then you weren't like that. You discovered Stuart McGill. You had other books in the studio. You you lent them out. You 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 were you were chasing the evidence, which all of that evidence has since been left to ossify. But um, so I I want I want you to talk a little bit about your experience as you started to go. Hey, there must be more. What's behind the veil? you know, and discovered this thing called evidence? Uh, well, I think like, I mean, if you're listening to this, I think you and I are alike in this way, that we want to be the best we can absolutely be at something. Like we don't want to half do a thing, you know. We don't want to be like a sort of 
not bad Pilates instructor. And so I think if you're listening to this, you know, I can, I can confidently say that I think that's, that's, that's part, that's a part of baked into your DNA. And that's baked into my DNA as well. I can't just like do a thing a little bit, you know, like I have to really go for it. <laughs> um, and you know, sometimes that gets us into trouble, but you know, sometimes most of the time it's awesome. <laughs> And so I was like, okay, well, Stop Pilates taught me all about neutral spine. Stop Pilates taught me all about transverse abdominis activation. Stop Pilates taught me all about like posture analysis and you know, movement quality. I'm like, okay, what else can I read about that? You know? Um, and so I went and, you know, I was like, oh, Stuart Spine McGill, he did all of the, he actually did the research on neutral spine. You know, that's where it comes from. He did put the pig, pig spines in jigs and, you know, bent them 86,400 times and all of that. So I started reading his, I read his book and I started, I started reading his original research and I read Shirley Sarman's book. She's an American physical therapist. Uh, she wrote a book called uh, Movement System, in, uh, Diagnosis and Treatment of Movement System Impairment Syndromes. Uh, and that was basically posture analysis plus muscle activation plus, uh, you know, movement quality all sort of put together um, into this kind of, physical therapy base of diagnostic and exercise prescription model. Uh, and so I just went and read all of I read all the Hodges and, and Hyde's and Richardson work on multifidus activation and transverse abdominus activation and all of that stuff. So basically like everything that I learned in Stop Pilates is like, okay, I've learned level one, what's level 10? You know, like what's, you know, what, <laughs> if a little bit's good, a lot must be more, much more better. <laughs> so uh, and so I, you know, so I, I bought all these books. I read the books. I did, you know, I went and did courses with a lot of these people. I've done a course with Paul Hodges, with Stuart McGill. Haven't worked with Shirley Simon, but um, you know, read a book from cover to cover, two books from cover to cover. And so, yeah, so I investigated all of that. And at this stage, I didn't really understand science because I didn't understand that we, the basis of science is you try and seek disconfirmatory evidence. You know, you try and seek evidence that that disconfirms your beliefs rather than seeking more evidence that confirms your beliefs. So I was like, oh, neutral spine's a thing. Great. Let me find out more about neutral spine and why it's a thing. You know, I didn't think, okay, huh, neutral spine's a thing. I wonder if anyone has a different view, you know? Um, so I didn't, I wasn't yet at that, you know, point, but I was, I got, you know, way down the rabbit hole on all of the biomechanical research and, and, yeah, current thinking. And this was like 2009, 2010, that kind of era. Mm. Okay. Uh, and so, but so now we've just, just fast forwarded us. What, because when did you say it was 2004 you started Breathe Wellbeing? Uh, no, I, I did, I trained as an instructor in 2004 and we started Breathe Wellbeing. Uh, I, you know, like created the company 2000, late 2006, employed Kylie, who still works with us, 2006, December. And we opened the doors of the studio March seventeenth, two thousand and seven. Got it. Okay, so these two, and, these and two I would, I, I would have had my Nokia sixty one twenty phone in my pocket, you know, push push button with a, like a little <laughs> LED screen that when it rings, it went like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. And so you're doing the stop training, and you're really were neck deep in these scientific books and the science of the day um well my my understanding you know my right. very limited you know point view of the science of the day okay so let's let's go to um 
somewhere in the next few years, and this is where I start to train with you, I'm doing the stock training with you. I'm doing stuff with you that, unbeknownst to me, is not Pilates. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's that's one of the things that I love about you, Heath, is that you are you have this beautiful naivety about you. And I don't, I don't. This is not a backhanded compliment. This is a forward-handed compliment. <laughs> um, that you like, you genuinely were surprised when I remember when you went to to try for the Australian Pilates Method Association and they were like, oh, you know, you didn't do cat stretch properly or what? I can't remember what they said, but something like that. It's like, dude, you're fucking awesome at the way you do Pilates. You're amazing, right? And they said, oh, yeah, your big toe was pointing the wrong way when you did cat stretch or whatever it was that they said. And you were like, oh, I guess I'm just, yeah, I must be doing it all wrong. I didn't know. Like why, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that that was definitely a thing. Yeah, it took me by surprise when I discovered that. So, um, and and what I was doing was what I'd learnt from you, and then the books that you just referred to, and my experience of those books was I was actively applying those movement strategies and so on in ways that weren't Pilates exercises. I was using the equipment to try and help people move differently because that's what I'd seen you do. And I, I was just, okay, great. This I've discovered this thing called Pilates, which is helps people through movement. And the framework at the time was, as you say, there was, there was better quality movement. And we were just using the equipment to facilitate that to the best of our understanding. Um, and we could go down that rabbit hole. But I think what I'd like to look at is how you started your own training organization or company and started writing your own courses so why did you do that like because you would and i mean i guess what i'm saying is when i did your stock training i just thought this is how stock training must be and then i did some stuff with some visiting stock trainers and they were like who are you and what are you doing and i was like who are you and what are you doing and and then not surprisingly, at some stage, you started your own training structures. But so what was that like for you to, to make that step and journey? I think there were multiple, uh, you, you were with us through that, you know, process. And it was Valentine's Day 2012 when we uh, separated from Stop Pilates. Um, and we'd been planning it for over a year. Um, and so... There were many sort of contributing factors to that decision. And I'm very happy for my time with Stop Pilates and I learned a lot from Stop Pilates and, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't done the Stop Pilates training. So I'm not, I have nothing but gratitude for my time with Stop Pilates and I met some amazing people, some of whom are still dear friends, um, Melanie Byford-Young, John Gary, you know, people I met in my Stop Pilates days um, that I still, you know, respect immensely and, um, yeah, not to mention yourself and Nicole and a whole bunch of other breathe people who we met through Stop Pilates. So, uh, so yeah. So, uh, so what I found was like, so I was, there were multiple dimensions to it. So firstly, I, like I said, I was going down the rabbit hole with all this extra reading, like extracurricular reading, which was based within the Stop Pilates paradigm, but just like more depth on the same stuff. Right. So if like, okay, we learned like one day in the Stop Pilates curriculum was on posture analysis like a half a day, I went and read like five books on it, 
you know, and, and, you know, five minutes is on neutral spine. I went and read like two books and 20 research papers on it. What is, so I basically, and then I was like, oh, let's cram this little bit in and put in this little bit extra thing. So the course started like groaning and bursting at the seams because we were like going, oh, well, by the way, when we're talking about posture analysis, here are these 99 other facts that are really interesting about posture analysis to help you do it better and more detailed. And here's how to do the Thomas test and how to, you know, do all manual muscle testing and differentiate between tensor fascia lata, you know, versus psoas versus iliacus versus rectus femoris versus sartorius versus pectineus versus, you know, and so like, you know, so we got like super detailed with all of that stuff. And we were teaching people all of those things literally inside a stop Pilates course, which is like, you know, 10 levels beyond what's actually on the curriculum of stop Pilates. You don't do any manual muscle testing or anatomy within the stop Pilates training. Um, and so first there was that, this course was kind of bursting at the seams. And then was sort of, because I was starting to know like, oh, well, I've learned all these cool things and I want my students to know these cool things as well, right? Why would I not teach them these cool things? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that seems like, selfish for me to know it and not teach it to them. Uh, and then, you know, there was another angle where, you know, one time Heath, we had a conversation where you were one of the senior instructors at Breathe While Being at this point, And you had a, com- and we were, I don't know, we were look- must've been looking for an instructor or something, you know, at, like for someone to employ. And I said like, oh, who do you recommend out of all of our students? And you, and you said something to me like, oh, you know what? I wouldn't employ most of our students. And I was, you know, and I was like, oh, shit, that's, you know, that's, that can't be good. Like that's, that doesn't, you know, that can't be their fault. Like mm. if you mm. wouldn't employ most of them, <laughs> that must be something we're doing wrong, <laughs> you know? Um, and so, so I think that triggered a lot of conversations, a lot of reflection, a lot of review about like, okay, well, what are we teaching them? What are the gaps? What would we want extra things would we want them to know? And, and it was stuff like, you know, how to program a class so your clients come back, how to program a mixed level class where you've got like in stop Pilates, you, you just didn't learn any of those things. It was all premised on teaching one-on-one to somebody who wanted to quote, learn Pilates. Whereas, you know, in our studio, it was all group work and it wasn't people, people didn't give a shit about learning Pilates. They just wanted to get stronger and fitter and healthier and not have so much mental stress and all of the rest of it. So they wanted the physical benefits of exercise, not to quote, learn Pilates. And so the teaching skills were very different. It was a group environment, a one-on-one environment. Their goals were different. Levels of ability were different. People weren't progressing in the same ways at the same pace that you were expecting to stop playing. So all of these things were different. And so we started adding these things into the course. Right, here's how it should be added that you were, we weren't taking stuff out as we added more stuff in. No, we just kept adding more in. We taught all of the full stop Pilates curriculum and extra and extra and extra. And so we, you know, we got good at cramming a lot more stuff in because we thought like, well, if we're teaching these instructors and they're coming out at the end of the course and we wouldn't employ them, it's like, man, we're taking their money under in bad faith, right? If we're saying we're going to teach you to be an instructor, it's like, yeah, but we wouldn't employ you. It's like, that's shit. <laughs> So, so you know, like we all felt uh, that we had to teach people to be the best possible instructors that we would employ, you know, otherwise we can't take their money. So we added in all this, you know, extra stuff. And we kept adding in more stuff and going, oh, we could add in this, we could add in that. And here's this modification that we learned in class that's really cool that clients love. Okay, do, you know, so we, we just changed, added in so much more stuff. And then, 
it got to the point where some of that stuff started contradicting <laughs> some of the other Scott Pilates curriculum. We we're like, oh shit. And so we're telling the students, oh, here's a great way to cue your group classes. And they're like, oh, hold on. But last week you told us to do it this opposite way, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, oh. And we couldn't really say, oh, well, that was a Scott Pilates curriculum. And this is stuff that we just added <laughs> in. And that's why it's contradicting it. So there came, there, there came a point where we realized that we're actually not teaching Scott Pilates anymore. Uh, and though we were teaching Stop Pilates, we were teaching so much extra stuff as well that when you kind of looked at the, the you know, like we put the, the stop, all of the Stop Pilates things were in there. Like if you looked at the whole Stop Pilates curriculum, like did we teach this, this, this? Yes, we taught it all. But then we taught so much other stuff that the Stop Pilates stuff was so diluted down that the, 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 out, you know, the outcome wasn't a Stop Pilates instructor, you know. And, and, and I thought that wasn't fair to the people who were signing up for a Stop Pilates course because they thought they were getting Stop Pilates where in fact they weren't getting Stop Pilates. And, and it also just like it, it was, there was that kind of internal inconsistency. So at that point we realized we had to, uh, we had to create our own thing because we couldn't in good conscience go back and go, okay, we're going to cut out all the stuff we've added and just teach the straight Stop Pilates course because it's like, okay, well, we know that that's not going to prepare you to work in the industry as we understand it. And we couldn't just continue to, doing what we we're doing because we thought, well, we're actually taking people's money and selling the Stop Pilates logo, but that's not actually what we're giving them. So mm. we felt like we couldn't proceed in either, that we had to start our own thing. Mm. Okay, so you start your own thing. So you take the Stop Pilates out and you're left with everything that you'd put in on top and – so the, the 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 transition. One of the things that uh, I'm sort of hearing there. One of the things I've observed as the the years have gone by since you did that. It's not you so much, but it's the evolution of the course. And it, um, what I'm hearing in what you're talking about with stop, there's some kind of parallel. I'm just trying to find the words for. So the stop course taught you as you say, how to do Pilates. It was, it was here's this um, system of movement that you learn these exercises. It, the assumption was kind of that you were learning it. Yes, you wanted to teach it, but really what you wanted was to know the system. To, to, you was sort of, it was kind of like a focus on the practitioner who was by chance also going to be a teacher. And, and there wasn't a lot. I mean, I don't remember there being any content about class. I remember there being a couple of suggested lessons at the back of the workbook, you know, just here's a couple of beginner classes. And that conversation about, I don't actually remember that conversation, but I do remember that the problem I had when I was building a studio was new instructors didn't have the skills they needed to run a great class. They knew about the Pilates movements and they knew about posture and they knew about this, that, you know, muscles and, some movement quality, but they didn't know how to stand in front of a group of people and get them to do something with their body in a cohesive way where they seem to be in control. Yeah. And that's been the journey that I've observed of the Breathe certificate course over the last, what would we say it is now, 10 years, the incrementally improving or sometimes taking huge leaps and other times making incremental adjustments. And I think while we've got just a little bit of time left, I'd love for you to talk about the the what was left when Stott disappeared. We had 
a still a massive course. Like I remember it. We were teaching. It was way too oh, big. Yeah. Huge. And really, so it seems like the process has been one of stripping back a lot to, to you know, to, and so maybe you could talk about that process and some of the insights you had along the way about how to actually structure a course so that it makes a person a good Pilates instructor, which, mm. you know, seems seems like implicit, but actually, no, <laughs> yeah. As we've well, heard, it's not. When all right, so when we when we split from stop plays, you said it was a process of like winnowing down or, you know, taking stuff out. First, we gorged, right? Because we went out of stop plays, we're like, oh, we can do literally anything, right? There are no constraints. You know, pleasure is the law. We can do anything we want. So we're like, oh, we'll put this in and this in and the ah it's like an all you can eat buffet, right? And we were like, oh, well, we'll take five of those and yeah, give me some of those ones as well. And oh look, why not put another one of that? Like so we were teaching like all of the repertoire, all of the posture analysis, all of the muscle testing, all of them um, like uh, targeted you know, strengthening and stretching. We were teaching all of the rehab stuff, all the pain science stuff. We were teaching all the business stuff as well. Like this was literally like three courses at a minimum, you know, shoehorned into one course. And it was like, oh, like we're just way over filled that course with with stuff um and people you know couldn't take it in and people were getting overwhelmed it was like you know that was like um, our poor students in those days mm. um some of them still remember i mean formally, all of that all of that but, all you can eat buffet is putting on a plate of the best possible intentions right right like it was right. from the best possible place right oh we can teach them this and we can teach them this and we can teach them this um and you know i think there was benefit to our students at that point but uh I think that, you know, we, we gave people way too much and too, too many different foci, you know, for one course. It was business. It was how to teach, it was how to teach Pilates and it was how to rehab injuries. And those, those are three separate skill sets. Uh, and so subsequently we've actually taken those all out and now we have two programs. We don't currently have a business program. We've been threatening we're going to have one for like five years, but we haven't <laughs> yet implemented it. Um, but, uh, we have the certification in Pilates, which teaches people to teach Pilates. And then we have the diploma of Pilates, the clinical Pilates, which teaches people who already know how to teach Pilates how to use Pilates to rehab injuries. And so those are separate things now. We used to smush them all together and go, we're just going to teach you all of the things about all of the things in one course. Um, so, yeah, so we don't do that anymore. And, yes, so after that initial, like, just let's stuff our face, you know, how many hot dogs can you eat in, you know, one sitting? Um, then the next, like, five years was like, okay, yeah, we better take that out and we better take that out and we better take that out and we better take that out. And we just kept taking stuff out. And eventually we're like, oh, this is a good course now. <laughs> Um, so, so that was part of it, but I think, you know, what, to sum up what, what we've learned, uh, that is that I think, you know, and another, another big turning point that happened for us. So that was a massive turning point when we left Stop Pilates and then all of a sudden we could just do whatever. And then another turning point was when COVID hit and we went online. This was March, 2020. And, uh, we, we pivoted our all of our training to online and we decided to stay online. So we became an online only company. Like up until February or the early March, 2020, we were a fully well, basically like 80% in-person training company. And so all of our assumptions and our curriculum and our scheduling and, and, and a lot of what we did was, was built on a foundation of assumptions based on teaching in an in-person model. 
And so stuff that we just inherited from Stoplight is like, you know, um, we ran the courses, you know, one weekend a month for X number of months, you know, whatever, depending on which course it was. Or, or we did an intensive like five day thing, five days in a row, you know, eight till 6 p.m. sort of thing. And those, that were those, those are sort of models that are inherent based on the constraints of in person. So when you're running, say, a Pilates instructor training program and you only run it like twice a year in a given area, well, you're going to have people traveling from a fair distance to do it, right? So people don't want to travel like one hour a day if they've got a three hour drive to get to you. You know, they don't want to come to class one hour a day, you know. If I've got to fly from the next mm, yeah. <laughs> county, right? So, so the constraints of offering an in-person model meant that you have to kind of smush your training into condensed blocks. Whereas, once we went online, we realised, oh no, we, there's no rules about when we offer our training now. We can just do it any time, and so we realised we could spread the training out. And so, basically, we looked at the science on, you know, we looked at like what are the best training organisations in the world do, like Harvard and Stanford and General Assembly, and you know, a bunch of other like world-leading organizations, uh, how do they structure their curriculum? How do they structure their schedule? Uh, and we look, oh, yeah, they'll basically do it the same. And I'm like, oh, I wonder why they all do it the same. And then we looked at the research and I'm like, ah, oh, that's why they do it because that's what works, right? So if you go to university- you Optimize learning, yep. Right. If you go to university, go to college, whatever you call it, they they have a you, – you basically, you will do a curriculum structure based on like every week you'll have a lecture, you have a tutorial, you do some – uh, self-study, you'll, you know, do some practice with your peers. Like there'll be basically these components that we practical aspects that you do every week, like a lab or something. Okay. And so every, that's what you do at college, right? And why do you do that? Because that's what works. Um, but when you go and do Pilates training, what do you do? You come and do like two seven hour blocks and then know, nothing for back, four weeks and then yeah. nothing for four weeks. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, Humans can't concentrate for that period of time. You know, we can only concentrate for like a maximum of 90 minutes. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, so basically, so that has allowed us to, so basically, you know, we've, it's just been like a, a removal of constraints and a substituting of different constraints for us. We've really, um, I think that, that the missing pieces, you know, as I currently understand them, uh, you know, that we deliver in our course that we weren't able to previously deliver in the stop Pilates model. I, and I don't think any other educator is delivering in this is in the certification that teaches people to become a Pilates instructor is, you know, well, there are, there are so many. <laughs> well, firstly, it's not just teaching the exercises and like the correct technique and the quote, correct cue for each exercise. It's actually, yes, you need to understand the repertoire hundred percent. That's got to be part of it. But teaching people to move is actually a skill set in itself and mm. it's not the same thing as being good at pilates they're completely mm. different skill sets you can mm. be good at teaching movement and not know anything about pilates and vice versa you can be good at pilates and not know anything about teaching movement well and the two, even further you can be good at teaching something and not know right. anything about pilates and be right. well set up to become a good pilates teacher right arguably as much or more so than if you're really good at pilates but don't know anything about teaching right Right. So I think there's, you know, there's a massive uh, literature on learning and teaching, both academic learning and teaching, like how to teach people to be teachers mm, mm. and also just how to teach movement, right? How to get people to 
how to how to enable people to become more skilled at doing movement you know whether that is the hundred or, or whatever so the journey that I'm hearing that you've and I've I've watched you go on is from one of personal interest in a particular field in which you've gone very deep and you had an emergent almost accidental growth as an educator because your next instinct from having valuable information was you wanted to share it with people and as you went about trying to share that with people you reflected on that and started learning lessons about how you would best share it which you might call teaching and so I think given the time we should bookmark this because I think there's another conversation that I certainly would be interested in having and I suspect people would be interested in hearing about but well more essentially about the certification course but not for the sake of talking about the breed certification course but because it's an expression of a lot of high quality evidence about learning about how humans learn movement and in it's in a very practical um easy easy to understand you know shareable way like i think there's mm. I, I feel like we only really just got to that story about how we got to the course as it stands but the thing that's really interesting about that is the evidence about learning and teaching, which we, we yeah. really didn't touch on. We've talked about the history of Pilates, essentially. So I think that's the next conversation. How's that sound? Mm. Yeah. Well, I think just really then, to, I guess, to sum up and, and answer your question, I think what's the, what's, you know, what's, you know, what have we learned and what are the, what are the things that we have in place now? I think it, you know, what does it mean to teach someone to be a good Pilates teacher? Mm. You know, well, I think, you know, what, you know, what would I want somebody to, if I'm employing somebody to teach in my studio, you know, what would I consider to be like that, you know, zenith of like OMG? If I could find that person, that would be a unicorn, right? So what skills, what at, what attitudes, what assumptions, you know, what behaviors would that person have? Well, that's what we try and instill in, in our students. And so that, that's part of it. And then the other part is, well, the student's the one who's paying us the money, right? And so they have a set of expectations coming in of what they want, right? And so what they want, because we know what they want because we've asked shitloads of them and they all say exactly the same thing. They want to be skilled and confident teaching Pilates. That's what they want, right? And so when, so what we've done in this, in the certification, this is a conversation you and I just had like two days ago. Um, is we basically, we know, all right, so there's basically, you know, parallel outcomes for any training program, um, which are one, the, 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 the results and two, the experience, right? So, you know, people come and do our certification because they're not a Pilates instructor, but they love Pilates and they're, they're feeling stuck in their life and they want to change career to something where they wake up every morning loving what they do. Right. And so they want to build skills and confidence so they can change other people's lives with Pilates the way that their life has been changed with Pilates. Right. So they want to build skills and confidence. Right. So that is something we've got to deliver is, is the skill and the confidence. And then on the other side, when they finish the course, well, they need to go out and get a job or get some clients or whatever. So we've got to actually make them actually good at what they do. Right. Regardless of whether they're confident or feel like they got a good deal and had a great experience, they've got to actually be good at the things that will make them successful in the industry, right? And so those are two separate things. One is a more subjective thing about the student's perception about their, their skill and confidence, and the other one is the actual skills that they have and do those match what actually employers and clients want. And so we've got to, we've got to measure both of those things, 
And so we talk to employers, we talk to clients, we go, okay, what, what, what are the things that make your ideal dream unicorn employee or instructor or whatever? That's the skills we've got to teach. And then we talk to the students and say, okay, what does it mean to you to, to succeed in this course? You know, and what will you consider like, oh, that's been, that's exactly what I wanted, you know? And so that what the students tell us again, and again, is they want skills and confidence. They, so they want the confidence that they have the skill. So we, you know, one of the things that we do uh, is we draw a, we do a little survey, not a little survey, relatively little, maybe five minute survey at the end of each module. There's five modules in the course. End of each module, we ask the students from, you know, strongly disagree to strongly agree, you know, scale of one to five. Yeah. I am confident, you know, teaching prenatal clients. I am confident, you know, queuing the mat work repertoire. I'm confident whatever the specific things are that they've learned that module, right? And so we know that those are the outcomes we want. Like if a student gets to the end of the course and they answer agree or strongly agree to all of those questions, we've done our job, right? That student is delighted because they're like, I, I signed up and I paid you the money because I wanted to be confident in my skill, right? And I am now, I'm confident in my skill, right? So that's our measure of the confidence. That's not our measure of are they actually skilled? We've got different measures for that. But, but all right, so if that's our outcome, we just draw a line straight back from there and go, okay, well, what do we need to do to, to get that person to that point where they go, yes, I strongly agree with this statement. I'm confident teaching prenatal clients, right? So, you know, then we basically that we construct the whole course around that. How do we get them to say yes to that question? Right. And that's, that's how you build a course. And of course, that's not the only thing because we have to actually build the skills as well. And that has to be an objective measure. So it can't be the student's self you know, diagnosing there. But yeah, so there's the, there's the, there's the, there's the actual results and then there's the, their experience, their perception. And we have to, you know, solve for both of those things. And what you do is you start with, okay, what are we going for? What does good look like? And you go, okay, well, what are the things that we need to do for that to be the case? Right. And just work back from there. So, you know, for example, with the prenatal thing, one of, you know, we actually don't just, it's not a general question on the survey. It's not like I'm confident teaching prenatal clients. It's like I'm confident modifying for supine exercises for prenatal clients after 20 weeks of gestation, right? It's very, very specific because that is one of the guideline recommendations on prenatal exercise. And so there are multiple touch points in the course where we say, you know, okay, we're going to teach you how to modify for supine clients, prenatal clients after 20 weeks of gestation. And then we show them and then we say, okay, tell me and show me how to modify for prenatal clients after 20 weeks of gestation. Then we say, you just showed me how to modify for prenatal clients after 20 weeks of gestation. Congratulations. You know how to modify for prenatal clients after 20 weeks of gestation. And then again and again and again, and they get to the end of the module and it's like, I'm confident modifying. And they're like, oh, for fuck's sake. Yes. You know, like they're like, can we stop talking about this? It's boring. <laughs> and so that's that's the way we that's the way we try and build it. Is like you start with what's the end the end in mind. You know, what are we going for here? What does done look like? And you go, okay, how do we how do we make that like basically impossible for them to not say yes to that? You know. And I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think that, I mean, that's not how I thought when I was teaching Stop Pilates or even in the early years when we just built our own course. I was thinking like, oh, 
we've got to cover this exercise and this exercise and this exercise and la da la da la. And then at the end, they knew some things and I didn't know other things and they were confident in some things and not confident in other things, but there was completely basically random because we hadn't consciously, intentionally instilled that and tested it and measured it and then improved on the bits where the measurement told us we weren't there yet. You know, we didn't have any of that mechanism in place. And that's been a more than one decade long process of learning how to learning how to do that so that at the end, when we say, you know, are you, you know, do you strongly agree? Uh, you know, I'm confident, you know, modifying supine exercise. And they're like, yes, right? It's like you don't even get to finish the, the question because they, they've already said it so many times that they're like, I'm fucking bored of you saying that. Would, you know, would you stop saying it? And, and when someone's bored of you saying something, that means they really, really get it, you know. <laughs> Great. Mm. All right. Uh, I'm going to call our time on our chat, Raf. I really appreciate your time and your energy sharing those stories. Uh, well, thanks, Heath. I do enjoy our conversations and I uh, hope we have more of them. We'll, we'll be this more is our, of them. This is, our, this is at least our third conversation. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And there's a lot more to come, I think, from what we've talked about today. See ya. See ya, mate.